There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another poll position on History Hack. We haven't had one of these for quite a while uh, because Alex banned me yet again from doing anything to do with 20th century and more specifically World War II because, you know, we all want more World War II, but Alex said no. So I went on the hunt and I found someone who does medieval Polish history. So I'm really excited to learn something new here because this is completely outside of my comfort zone. So what I've done, I've gone and found Agata Zieliska, who literally a few weeks ago completed her PhD. First of all, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you. She concentrates her research on the relationship between uh, the papacy and the Polish church during the Middle Ages. So we're going to be doing a bit of religious things. Uh, stepping on a few toes, I think. But never mind. Uh, hi, Agatha. Welcome on the podcast. Hi. Hello. Um, thanks so much. I'm really excited to be here. So, and, you know, any opportunity to talk about the papacy and Poland and the Middle Ages is a good opportunity. So, do you know what? I love this because we both have a common kind of historical thing, which is Poland. But you're literally on one side of the century. <laughs> and century yeah no like 100 do you know what i don't even know anymore how to pronounce all this all this number thing you're one side i'm on the other so it's quite interesting <laughs> to see and to talk about this kind of stuff because we don't i mean in poland as you very well know we very rarely talk about anything but the 20th century um yes and no i feel uh, which you'll be hearing a lot of yes and no from me today um i think that's fine. but that's fine. um yes and no no yeah, but I think like, yeah, I, I agree with you that a, a big focus is sort of 20th century, World War II, post-World War history. Um, and then it gets sad because everyone forgets about the wonderful Middle Ages that we can talk about. <laughs> exactly. So what we're going to do, we're not just going to educate me. We're not just going to educate the Polish nation, but we're going to educate everyone. To... Fabulous. Right. I think let's start off with the first one. So I'm going to give you a statement let's be controversial just for fun uh, so without the church there would be no polish nation state today how true is this statement well yes and no i would say again <laughs> <laughs> that very very many yes and no's but it's fine explain yeah. yourself uh, explain myself so uh, each country likes telling its story right um, and I think in Poland, it's really, really common to tell the story of the Polish nation, the Polish kingdoms when they existed, 
and eventually the Polish nation state um, by focusing on the fact that Poland was a Latin Christian uh, polity. Um, so there's this trend in academic history, in um, in the history that kids get taught at school, and sort of just in the public conscience that because Poland adopted Christianity in the 10th century, that like started the path towards nationhood. Um, and I think, you know, there is, there's definitely something to it. So I'm not trying to say like, this is a complete lie um, because, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not trying to step on all the toes, all the possible toes. Um, just a few. Just a few. Like you, you need to take that with a, a, a grain of salt, I think. Um, and like, you know, to sort of talk about the Middle Ages more generally, um, it's a generalization, but it's a useful one that the clergy, so, you know, the priests of the church, the bishops, the Pope, etc., they provided um, like useful services to, um, to society. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, in the Middle Ages, they were the ones that could write. They were the ones that could read. Therefore, they were the ones that could produce documents that historians study. So in that sense, because, you know, with the adoption of Christianity by, by the Polish Duke, um, written sources started appearing much more commonly and written sources that were produced in Poland um, started appearing a lot more. So, you know, in that sense, yes, you know, we can retrace Polish history because of sources produced by the church. But like, is that enough to say that without the church, there would be no Poland? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So let's talk a little bit more about this and give us a bit of context. So how did, how did all of this start? How did all of this start? Um, so to take the point of view of, you know, no church, no Polish state, <laughs> Um, there's this Polish, um, leader, warrior, ruler, um, called Mieszko, Mieszko I. And he was acquiring power throughout sort of the second half of the 10th century in, you know, the lands that today we would call Poland. Um, and in 965, I think, uh, I'm sure someone's going to call me out and say that this date is contested now, but whatever, for the sake of argument, yeah, for the sake of argument, <laughs> 965, he married a Czech princess, uh, Dobrava or Dobravka, um, who was Christian. She, so her family, the Czech royal family, the Przemyslids, were had already converted to Christianity and they converted to Latin Christianity. So, you know, they accepted the Pope's authority. They accepted the authority of Rome uh, versus, you know, Orthodox Christianity, which was based around um, Constantinople. So in order for this to work, Mieszko had to convert to Christianity as well. Um, so in 966, he was baptized and this is sort of the date that everyone in Poland knows. It was the it was not oh, yes. just the baptism of Mieszko, it was the baptism of Poland. And that's when Polish history started, um, because the, the church entered um onto the stage. Um and like, you know, obviously this is a hugely important moment because 
I guess the way I like to think about it is, you know, he joined a club. He joined a Latin Christian club. So therefore he had contacts with the Czechs. He had contacts with um, the neighboring uh, Holy Roman Empire. So the Germans. Um, And, you know, because he was now a Christian, they, the sorts of relationships they had were slightly different if he remained pagan. Um, Because, you know, if had he remained pagan, he would have been open to conquest and conversion that was, you know, more violent, etc. So he joined this club. And then also by joining this club, he's, you know, him and the elites in Poland started establishing connections with the Pope himself, the Popes in Rome. Um, So, you know, it was a useful thing to do at that time. So basically, it was an ideal idea to join this club because it brings better contacts um, and better relationships with other, let's say, in inverted commas, kingdoms in Europe. Yeah, exactly. And um, for sure. And then sort of the debates around this and people still like, I think every sort of anniversary of this 966 date, every anniversary of um, Mieszko's baptism, there's this massive debate about, okay, did he do, did he convert for political reasons so that he could join this club? Or did he convert because he actually believed, you know, in sort of the ideals preached by, by you know, whatever, um, the Christians that were around him? Um, and it's, to me, that's like such a weird conversation to be having because obviously we're never gonna know that is, <laughs> right what, what would you if you if you could and had well, obviously everybody has an opinion what would your opinion be on this a or b yes and no again yes <laughs> and no. <laughs> a, little, a little bit of everything a little bit of both because you know like I think it's quite um, it's a quite cynical view to take such a decision as completely political because um, you know, people, people in history, people today, they all have some sort of spiritual life, right? Um, whether we call it religion or whatnot. So, you know, it might have been the case that when Mieszko heard, you know, what his new bride was saying about Christianity, he was like, okay, maybe there's something to it. Um, but that doesn't stop him from, uh, you know, taking advantage of the political um, benefits that this could bring. So I guess that's my personal opinion. So we've more or less now understood how all of this started. But, however, uh, Poland wasn't always um, a kingdom in the Middle Ages. And to understand this a little bit better and the relationships of what we're going to go on to in a moment, can you give us a brief timeline of what happened? Sure. Um, everyone loves a timeline. I promised myself that I would create a timeline when I was doing my PhD to make my life easier. But surprise, surprise, I never did. Um, <laughs> Do you know what? We always promise ourselves that in our research and then it's just everywhere. Yeah. And I felt so bad because at some point uh, to a group of students who, you know, it was the first time that they were learning about the Middle Ages in Europe at, you know, first class of term, I was like, you guys should create a timeline for yourself, it, yourselves. It's so useful, blah, blah, blah. And like under the table, my fingers were crossed because I was like, nope, 
<laughs> didn't happen for me. But anyway, if people like timelines. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to your timeline that you've now created for us. Exactly, exactly. And not your so, PhD. Yeah. So thank you. You know, this was a really useful learning experience <laughs> for me. Um, so yes, timeline. Let me look at my notes again, because I'm sort of perpetually worried that um, I mess up dates, but whatever. Historian. Can, I just, can I just tell yeah. you, we all mess up dates. Don't worry about it. Sure. Only, only the people out there who are complete sticklers for dates, they're the problem. I think so, because like, honestly, who cares if something happened in 1116 or 1117? Like, does it make that big of a difference? <laughs> anyway. It's only a thousand years ago. Exactly, exactly. No, like, no one is going to die because of this today. But if you do this in my research, that is the end of the world. Yes, you're very correct. (laughs) And I I would not want to be in your place, to be fair. Right, so hit us, go for it. Tell us what happened to give us this timeline. Okay, so we've got 966, the beginning of Polish history. Nothing existed before that. Mieszko becomes a Christian. (laughs) <laughs> sorry i'm i'm really sorry that i'm laughing i shouldn't it's inappropriate keep going i think it's very appropriate but um anyway 966 mieszka um is baptized though actually that date itself is contested because people think you know maybe it was 964 965 whatever 966 baptism round that round that time exactly but um the thing is he was never crowned king so he was a duke um so like, you know, if you think about prestige and that sort of, you know, club of European kingdoms and monarchies, you know, it was, he, he hadn't reached that very top. Um, but then his son, uh, Bolesław, uh, Bolesław Chrobry. So I'm going to be throwing in some like Polish um, sobriquets for the rulers because they're just really common. And I think they're also, a lot of them are hilarious um <laughs> this guy like this guy Hrobry, it means the brave so not particularly h- hilarious but i promise there will be some weird ones uh, coming up so anyway boleslav the first mieszko's son was um very briefly crowned um just before his death in 1025 um and then you know his son mieszko the second because you know we all like giving the same name to everyone in history or whatever people in history all had the same names uh which makes our lives super easy <laughs> do you know what it's like in, in english history charles james elizabeth <laughs> yeah yeah that yeah exactly exactly um so his son he inherited the crown and then until about like the mid yeah the mid 12th century poland um was a kingdom so there was a a a king um for and they were all from a single dynasty called the piasts um but in 1138 and i know this date and this is the correct date (laughs) um bolesław the third which means the wry mouth um so like his his mouth was crooked, which apparently that the, his nickname came from the fact that he um, broke a lot of promises or lied to people. Um, so, you know, that's a great nickname to have. Um, 
anyway, he died in 1138. And instead of passing his kingdom and his crown to his son, he had um, three sons, I believe, four sons. Um, but basically what happened is instead of you know, passing on the kingdom as a whole to his eldest son, he decided to split the kingdom into four parts. Three, um, three of these parts went to his three sons, respectively, and then the fourth one around Krakow, uh, which was, you know, one of, I don't think you could call it a capital of the kingdom at that point, because there were other places which were equally important, but it was one of the most important areas of the kingdom. Krakow and sort of the primacy amongst the princes, the primacy amongst the dukes would go to the eldest son. And then the rule was that, you know, each branch of the family would have their own, you know, areas of the kingdom, duchies of the kingdom to rule. And then whoever was the oldest would also rule Krakow. So this was the so-called rule of seniority. And as you can probably tell, like, it's a good plan on paper, but we know that people would never sort of agree to this. So for the next few hundred years, there is like almost constant war between the different dukes of Poland as to, you know, who ruled what and who was the most important one of them. I think this is where um, our next question is quite relative, um, relevant, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> okay, so... This is where the Pope gets involved. So how did Poland relate to the papacy? In layman's terms, how was Poland's relationship with the Pope? And what role did the Popes play in, in all of this? I'm not going to say yes and no, because that doesn't make sense. But it, it's maybe. sort of another... <laughs> kind maybe. of. Kind of, you know, another sort of classic historian's answer. It's complicated. <laughs> um. Because the role, like, imagine you're a pope, which all of us imagine constantly. Um, you're sitting comfortably in Rome, um, maybe not always Rome and maybe not always comfortably because, you know, people are out to get you. They're unhappy with what you're doing, etc., etc., etc. But the pope is just simply too far away from most areas in Europe to do anything tangible. And yet popes did have a lot of authority over people because people sought out that authority. People wanted someone who was, you know, I guess one way of saying it is like someone who was above the different, you know, divides between kingdoms, etc., who whose authority was accepted by both sides of a conflict, for example. Um, so the popes had been in sort of, you know, involved from afar in, um, in Polish history, even pr prior to this sort of fragmentation. Um, because there's some sources suggesting that, you know, when Mieszko, the first son, was crowned, the Pope at that time did give some sort of tacit approval for that coronation to happen. And people like explaining it by saying that, you know, the Pope needed a strong ally um, against the, so Poland, against um, the papacy struggles with the Holy Roman Empire. So, you know, Germany. Um, 
so you know there's these these sorts of um negotiations that happened um before but again we sort of need to remember that fine the pope endorsed Bolesław the Brave as king of Poland but like what did that mean what like what difference did it make um and that's always the tricky question did it make any difference i think it um it it added legitimation um you know if Bolesław Chrobry could say that the pope approved for him to have a crown and be independent of the holy roman empire then it would be a little bit more difficult from for the holy roman emperor to sort of attack with impunity um because you know eventually if things got really escalated which um i don't think they did at that point you know and if the if the pope really wanted to he could sort of rally other kingdoms and be like well you know you need to go and sort this out because the the holy roman emperor is um you know disregarding what i said uh, equally the pope could excommunicate people which um to us doesn't seem very serious but um excommunication meant a if you're excommunicated you can't get to heaven okay fine but in practical terms it also meant that sort of any authority you have any allegiance you had um on earth was void so if you if the holy roman emperor was excommunicated then all of his you know his princes the people that supported him had no obligation whatsoever to listen to him to pay taxes to give military aid so you know it was that threat of the situation getting a little bit sticky um that made a difference if you know the pope said okay you know this guy can be a king the you know the at the time when poland was fragmented it was interesting because most of the dukes that were you know at war with one another they always did try to like make sure that they had the protection of the papacy and uh, the protection of the papacy could literally mean that they had a letter from the pope that acknowledged their rule so like that you know that sort of again that idea that the pope was guaranteeing somewhere was there but the the way things played out was very much on the ground uh, in terms of you know who had a stronger army who had the right sort of network and alliances and stuff like that here's my piece of paper from the pope i deserve to rule yeah and then the other exactly but then the other person could be like well here's my piece of paper from the pope i should be able to rule <laughs> oh my god it was probably it was chaos wasn't it i think it was um i think it was complete chaos and then like you know bringing this back to sort of the the polish church so the bishops that were actually in poland and were um involved in these conflicts um you know they they were members of the elite they had their political alliances so sort of your your the papal support the, the support of the pope that you got was usually as strong as you know your local clerics could sort of enforce it if that makes sense okay so poland's in chaos at yes. this point <laughs> Dukes fighting amongst dukes. There is no Polish kingdom. 
So then at the beginning of the 14th century, it actually becomes recreated. So it actually becomes the Polish kingdom again. So what yeah. role does the Pope have in all of this? Again, a complicated role. <laughs> um, but basically what happened is, as you said, you know, lots of war, lots of dukes going at each other's throats, all of them trying to get the support of bishops and the Pope, etc. Um, and actually, like, this is quite a gory um, episode in Polish history because in 1295 one of the Polish dukes Przemysław II without a fun nickname sadly uh, he, he managed to sort of overpower most of his other competitors and sort of he got the Polish archbishop so the the most important local cleric um, to crown him in 1295 um and i think there was some sort of like tacit papal approval or if it wasn't approval it was just like yeah whatever do do what you want we're not going to stop this um but then he got killed he got murdered in suspicious circumstances <laughs> um, isn't that always what happens yeah yeah basically and i think like even the, 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 the medieval sources that talk about this, you know, some chronicles say that it was um, the Brandenburg family from Germany, from the Holy Roman Empire, um, that had him assassinated. Isn't it some always sources... the Germans? Well, that's the thing. So the other sources say it was the uh, two Polish noble families that had him assassinated. I, th I think that's um, the, the usual the usual line throughout Polish history. What I find is option A, it was the Germans. Option B, it was our own. Option C, it was the Russians. <laughs> option C, it was the Russians. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, I interrupted your flow. Keep going. No, no, no. That's completely fine. Um, then in. In, in the year 1300, um, to, to make things just even more complicated, because why not, um, the Czech king, Wenceslaus II, um, Václav in Polish, he had a claim to Krakow. And even though he wasn't particularly liked by a lot of the Polish noble families, uh, he wasn't particularly liked by um, by the archbishop. The archbishop did crown him, and I think he did that because it was just too much chaos. And you know, it's better to have a king we don't like rather than you know continuous bloodshed. Um, he died of natural causes, as far as we know, five years later. But then his son, uh, who in theory took the throne in 1305. Uh, was stabbed a year later in 1506. Oh my god! It's like it's just knock him off, really. Yeah. The thing is, so I don't know much about who he was stabbed by, but he was stabbed like back in uh, in Czechia in in Bohemia. Um, fun fact: It's no longer the Czech Republic; it's Czechia. I don't know if you knew that, but I trip myself up every time. I still get confused. It's yeah. fine. It's, for example, what I call, uh, which is now Lviv, I still call it Lvov. So, and yeah. I still get criticised for it. But anyway, doesn't matter. Yeah. 
Yeah, it doesn't matter. As, aside. But anyway, so he got, he got um, stabbed. Um, so again, more chaos. And then finally, we get to sort of the actual long-lasting recreation of the Polish kingdom. Um, at sort of the very, uh, let's say 1318, 1317, somewhere around that, uh, a Polish bishop, Gerward of Wrocławek, again, no fun nickname, um, went to see the Pope, Pope John XXII, who was at that time in Avignon in France, it was today France rather than in Rome. Um, it was just a time of papal history where the papacy, the, the Roman papacy was not actually in Rome. But anyway, he spent quite a lot of time lobbying, as we would say today, uh, the Pope to endorse one of the Polish dukes, Władysław Wokietek, which means <laughs> Władysław the elbow high, because apparently he was very short, only elbow height. Um, yeah, so Gedvat tried to lobby the Pope to endorse him as the King of Poland. Um, and that at that time, it put the Pope in quite a tricky situation because this is a time when he was trying to maintain good relations with the Holy Roman Empire. And he was also trying to maintain good relations with the Teutonic Knights, Krzyżacy, who are the bane of Polish historians, I like to think, because everything boils down to Krzyżacy. <laughs> that is also very true. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to open that can of worms. But basically, the Pope was, you know in a tricky position, but um, again, sort of gave, didn't give Gerwad a letter saying we are happy that for Władysław to be crowned king of Poland, but he basically said, okay, let, you know, we're not going to do anything. We're not going to publicly say this is fine, but go ahead. Um, so yeah, in 1320, um, Władysław was crowned as King of Poland in Krakow by the Polish Archbishop, um, spent a lot of his reign, which lasted about uh, 13 years, sort of, again, still carrying out wars um, to sort of consolidate his rule. But then when he died, his son took over in 1333. And, oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, yes, exactly. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
Should we? I think we should move on to Kazimierz because he's kind of um, he's the fun one, really, isn't he? In this story, yeah, he is. He is. So Kazimierz Wielki, or Kazimierz the Great, um, he messed up his relationship with uh, with the church, didn't he? How did he do that? Yeah, he he he's a he's a bit of a pickle. <laughs> I have to say, because on the one hand, he ruled for so long. He ruled for around 40 years. His period is known as sort of the height of Polish medieval, like, po- like not just political history, but um, it was just a time of prosperity, um, law reform. There's a saying in Polish, um, Zastał Polskę drewnianą, zostawił murowaną, or something like that, which like translates to, you know, he encountered Poland built all in wood, but he left it built all in stone. Um, I love it. Throwing a bit of Polish in there, loving it. Why not? Why not? Um, So yeah, like, super important, lots of good things happening, but he himself was... (sighs) a bit of a rogue one at times. Um, so one of the things uh, which sort of made the church both locally and the papacy a little bit uneasy <laughs> is that he was a little bit of a ladies' man. Oh, they're always a ladies' man, aren't they? Exactly. So he had, I think he had four wives, which is completely fine because, you know, he married, had children, his wife died, then he remarried. Fine. No problem. Um, But. But. Exactly. (laughs) There's there's a but. There's a but. Um, According to like, not just one chronicle, but I think quite a few um, different medieval sources and fair enough not all of them were written in his lifetime um but it is what it is that's what we have um so i'm gonna believe them he had a series of lovers he had a series of concubines um four five six maybe um (laughs) exactly with whom he had illegitimate children and like you know fair enough um that's not super uncommon super uncommon to have illegitimate children but like i think the problem was for a lot of clerics that he was quite um open about it oh my gosh that's that is not that is not a good thing here is my concubine here is my wife concubine one wife three yeah exactly exactly um and you know the the sort of the the most intriguing story in in all of this is that um one of them was supposedly jewish so supposedly he had a jewish lover um estera or esterka uh who you know that was you know a bit of a bit too transgressive um but because there were quite a lot of laws at that time though weren't there yeah that's the thing um like again that's that's another sort of interesting aspect of his reign and sort of his his rule in relation to the church um because Kazimierz the great um passed and also sort of confirmed previous laws passed by other um Polish rulers which ensured that 
um, Jewish people could settle in Poland um, under sort of royal protection. So um, they were allowed to establish their own towns and communities um, and you know they they were free to 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 practice Judaism at that point. Do you think that was influenced by his mistress? Oh, good question. You know, was she whispering in his ear to say that he should do that? If only we knew. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Where are those sources? Where yeah. are they? Where are their secret letters or tapes recorded undercover? Oh, that would that would be do you know what I'd like to think that um he did have a Jewish mistress. So in my mind, he had the Jewish mistress and she she helped the Jewish communities strive in Poland at the time. In my mind. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to believe that too. <laughs> so did um just to add uh something into there, so how was the relationship between because obviously he helped the relationship with the with the Jewish communities and the church, but in, in general, what was it like? So that's that. Um, that's what I mentioned before. That it was really interesting because um, the the papacy from the 13th century um, passed a series of decrees or a series of laws that were meant to be observed by you know by all Christians, which stipulated that you know Jews had to wear specific clothes specific hats or symbols that, you know, showed up, like made it clear to everyone that they were Jewish. Um, The papacy passed certain laws about how Jews could only live in specific places, could only perform specific um, jobs, um, you know, couldn't intermarry with Christians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So not great, like, you know, horrible even. Um, But at the same time, the papacy claimed to be the protector of Jews living within Christendom. Um, so, you know, the way that popes explained it to themselves was that, yes, you know, we're setting out these rules for, for, for the Jewish people, but it's, you know, it's for their protection. Okay. That, that makes sense. Not. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. And the interesting thing is that there were two um, papal legates in Poland and a papal legate was, uh, a representative of the Pope sent directly to a specific place, in our case, Poland. Um, and they were incredibly powerful because they, like, according to sort of the laws, um, the, the canon law, the, the, you know, the law of the church, a papal legate was basically like a mini Pope sent to a specific area to carry out Pope duties. Um, so two of them while they were in Poland, passed um, laws which basically repeated what I said before, that Jews need to wear specific clothes, need to live in specific areas, uh, need to, um, or can only perform this number of tasks or whatever, you know, these are the professions they can do. Um, And they shouldn't, you know, mix with Christians unless under very specific circumstances. But then, so we've got that. We've got Kazimierz saying, it's fine if you, if you establish your own uh, communities. I'm going to protect you with my royal law. Uh, you're, you know, incredibly important to the kingdom in terms of, you know, the sort of industry, trade, crafts, etc., etc., um, that 
Jewish people happen to excel at at this point. Um, and then there's the Polish clerics, there's the Polish bishops. And as far as I understand, in this period, they there was no Polish church law passed with regards to the status of of the Jewish settlers, um, of the Jewish you know, inhabitants of the kingdom. Um, so that's interesting because you'd expect either for them to sort of staunchly support what the papacy was saying and be like, okay, you know, we're not happy you're here, but you're here, so we, in theory, have to protect you. Or they could have, you know, thrown their lot with Kazimierz and been like, well, this is, this is fine. We're, we can all get along. Um, so that's a weird thing that I don't really know what to think about um, and I probably should do more research about. And probably also there's people who know a lot more about this than I do. There you go. That's your next paper lined up <laughs> and ready to go for you. Yeah. So, okay, let's, uh, let's do a bit of modern history just, just, just for fun because um, I can't, can't go away without doing something modern. So let's, so how did Poles in the 19th and 20th century relate to the medieval church, including Poles that are around the world, like, for example, Poles like me, who ended up in the UK after the Second World War? Well, not directly after the Second World War, you know. <laughs> are, are you that old? Are you really that old? <laughs> <laughs> My grandparents, but people, people who listen to the podcast know this. But anyway. <laughs> wow, okay. I'm glad you reassured me of that because I was getting a bit worried. But anyway. <laughs> I look very good for my age. Thank you very much. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so that's the thing I mentioned, you know, we started this whole podcast with, um, with a discussion about how every, you know, every country likes telling their story. And for Poland, the story is that, you know, without the church, there would be no Polish nation and no Polish nation state. Um, and I think that was, you know, that has its roots in Polish history. Um, because, you know, the, the fact that in the 18th, 19th centuries, Poland did not exist as, you know, as a kingdom or a nation or whatever. So, you know, there's a recurring trend here, isn't there? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, so in, in the 19th century, um, and probably earlier, I, I, not probably, for sure earlier, um, when there were historians um, writing the history of the Polish nation state at a time when Poland as a political entity did not exist. They had to create a, a narrative and that narrative was strongly tied to sort of the presence of Latin Christianity, the presence of Christianity in Poland um, because it gave the, the medieval Polish kingdom legitimacy, uh, legitimate, what <laughs> sorry you know <laughs> sorry legitimate say what anyway sorry keep going you know the 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 medieval polish state was a legitimate state because it was a christian state and um it also differentiated poland from let's say russia which was orthodox um and it was very important you know it it for the people writing in the late 18th and 19th centuries, the fact that Poland had been, you know, a proper Christian medieval kingdom 
was grounds for for there to be a Polish state at that time. You know, it 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 was proof that Poland as a nation existed from time immemorial and and needed to be recreated. Um, and then it was, you know, after World War One, um, and then World War Two happened <laughs> because we life is not easy. Nope. <laughs> Um, and then after World War II, you know, huge changes into what was Poland. Um, and obviously Poland was, you know, governed by, by, by a communist um, government regime, whatever you want to call it. But still, you know, the, the idea of a Polish nation state was incredibly imp important at that time. So historians writing in the in the 50s and 60s in Poland even though and you know they could have you know been actually practicing sort of you know they could have espoused Marxist um, views and values or whatnot or they could have just had to you know um, write in a Marxist way because that's the only way they could get published like that's you know that's a whole different discussion about you know historians from that period Um, but basically, it was a time when uh, Marxist historiography was written. And you, some people are surprised at just how much people at that time wrote about the church. Because, you know, if, if you say Marxist, immediately what comes to mind is, okay, you know, religion doesn't matter. It's inherently bad, etc., etc., etc. But even Marxist historians of Poland had to talk or talked about the church at length because it was this idea that, with, that, that the church, the introduction of the church allowed for, uh, for the Polish nation and the nation state to develop. So it was important, but it was treated incredibly um, instrumentally. So, you know, without this sort of spiritual aspect, without, thinking that it was, you know, it was a religion that mattered to people. It was more in those, like, political choices and, and um, consequences. I'm going to throw something in the hat here. So coming from a modern perspective, uh, modern mm -hmm. historian, I'm going to disregard everything before the 1918. Um, and, I, and I kind of... <laughs> no history happened then. No, no history. That's what Poland was created in 1918. Um, <laughs> so if if you look back and you look, especially during the Second World War, if you look during the communist period, for me, I believe that the church was very useful at that time because it did help unify Poles. I, I mean, obviously, I can't judge anything before that because it is not my time of history. Sure. But for that perspective of the 20th century, I think the church was incredibly important. And I don't quite, again, I don't quite agree that it, there would be no Polish nation state today because people don't seem to factor in culture, language um, and everything else that comes with it. But mm -hmm. I think religion does play, especially in the 20th century, it plays something, uh, an important role. No, I, I, I agree, definitely. And that's why sort of, I always say like, yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, it's that interesting thing that even... Um, Marxist historians who would disregard, who you'd assume would disregard religion, um, couldn't, because it was so important to Polish history, if you see what I mean. I, I, I totally agree. Um, yeah, and like, 
I think because I think because religion was such an important aspect of 20th century history, um, before, during, and after World War II, um, I think that amplified the the sorts of the need, or even it it made it um, more pressing and more useful, and just almost naturally it made historians want to write about the medieval church um, as being so important to the creation of the nation state eventually. Which um, is perfect for you. Exactly. <laughs> perfect. Listen, I'm going to say thank you because this has been so insightful and I've learned so much and um, hearing the names of some of these kings and dukes in the English form has been incredibly, <laughs> incredibly entertaining for me. But this Ooh, I, didn't, I, I didn't mention the best one. Władysław oh, Laskonogi, yes. Władysław Spindleshanks. <laughs> Do you know what? Uh, when we post this up, I'm going to post all of these at the bottom so people can uh, get their laughs in now because I think they're far more entertaining in English <laughs> than, than they are for me in Polish. But Thank you so much. This has been absolutely amazing. I've learned so much about the Polish church, the papacy, especially in the medieval period. And this is coming from a modern historian. So thank you. <laughs> Thanks so much. Um, I had a lot of fun and now I have a timeline of Polish history that I can use forever. So, you know, maybe the PhD didn't accomplish that, but this podcast did. Excellent. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Elena and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join us on either of those platforms uh, marcus is currently working on some benefits for you so uh, there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms we're revamping ourselves on both of them so don't forget to go in you can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up history hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year we are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.